Every single one of us has a life worth paying attention to. All of us have intersections found at the heart of who we are. Join us as we try to be grateful for the gift of every person we encounter. Each of us has a rich and powerful story. Hello, friends. My name is Chrissy Reeves Pendergrass. And I'm Adam Baker. This is Instructions for Living a Life, a podcast about the stories found where faith, hope, love, and mental health connect. Good morning, friends. It is a pretty beautiful day here in St. Louis. This is Adam Baker, and this is Instructions for Living a Life. I am uh, coming to you as a solo um, interviewer today because my co-host, Chrissy Reeves-Pendergrass, is unfortunately sick with an ear infection. So if you are listening to this and you don't mind lifting her up in prayer, I know she'd appreciate it. But I'm excited to talk with our guest today. Um, Our guest is Lauren Zanely. You got it right, Adam. Practice that last name. name. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Lauren, I'm so glad that you could join us, and I'm grateful for you making time in your busy schedule to be with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. You're the first podcast I've ever been on. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I've done live radio, which is terrifying because I always think I'm going to sound like insane or say something crazy. So it's nice to know we have the ability to edit too. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, listeners, that is something that we always tell our guests. Like, look, if you say something that you just feel like, (laughs) what did I say? We can we can get rid of that along the way. But uh, we do try and keep it as real as we can. But Lauren, um, I I'm just excited to have you just as a guest today, I'd love to hear more about who you are and um, kind of what you'd like to talk about today. Okay. Who am I? That's a big question. Um, question. (laughs) I live in Crestwood. Um, I am a licensed professional counselor. So I have been in private practice uh, 10 years as of a couple of weeks ago. I have an outpatient center located in Webster Groves called St. Louis Addiction Counseling. Really original name, right? (laughs) Um, And I lead groups. I do individual therapy. I do couples therapy. And I do nothing but substance abuse. So that is my field of expertise. Um, I'm married. I have a little girl who's eight years old. Uh, And yeah, I mean, that's pretty much my life right now. And helping people, you know, get through the pandemic. That's been something I've been, you know, working hard at, you know, the last year. Sure, sure. Yeah, substance uh, use and abuse and supporting those who are going through it or struggling with it was never an area that I got to plug into during my time as a therapist. So I'm fascinated to learn more about why that matters to you and what that looks like for you. And uh, yeah, could you share more about kind of why it matters and how it emerged as a point of purpose in your life? Yeah, so I have my own recovery journey. So I've been sober for a long time now. I went into residential care when I was 21 years old. And I actually think it was two weeks before, you know, after my 21st birthday, which is hmm. celebrating your 21st birthday and rehab's a really, you know, killer party. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um, I went to school in Chicago and I just had a miserable time there. You know, up to that point in my life, I really didn't struggle very much. I made great grades. I had great friends. I actually think if you would have asked like my high school chums to describe me, they probably would have said that I was kind of a goody two shoes. Mm. Um, 
I wasn't using drugs. I would maybe have a couple wine coolers at my friend's barn occasionally. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was kind of the extent in it. The transition to college for me was brutal. And I don't think we talk about it enough because I have a mm-hmm. lot of younger clients now who are in college and they're freshmen or sophomore. And we don't talk about how difficult that transition can be. All I wanted to do my entire life is get out of my hometown mm-hmm. and go to the city and go to school there. And once I got there, I felt totally unprepared. It's a massive um, change, massive change. It is. I had I had no support system. I didn't know anybody there. I went to a Jesuit school, um, which was great. And I have a lot of kind of cool Jesuit priest friends. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I didn't grow up Catholic. And so there wasn't a lot of kind of spiritual programs uh, for me to plug into either. And for whatever reason, I had a really difficult time finding a church. So I went from having a lot of faith in my life to having almost none in college. Um, And I think that was a huge shift for me and Mm -hmm. mostly kind of found myself incredibly depressed um, in a really bad relationship. And then, you know, introduced to drugs and alcohol kind of for the first time in my life. Um, Yeah, and it was kind of a spiral from there. Kind of a perfect, perfect circle of unfortunate events. Yeah. Yeah. I look back sometimes and I wonder, like, had I gone to school in town or with the best friends, like, would the circumstances be different? And I, I don't know. I don't have the answer to mm-hmm. that. I don't know that that's important. Um, but I do think it was kind of the perfect storm mm-hmm. for me to kind of spiral out. Uh, but, but obviously, that's what kind of the ethos behind me being a substance abuse counselor and opening up my own residential center. So if you would have asked 21 year old me, would I ever be a therapist? Mm-hmm. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I would have ever considered it as a, a career path for myself. Sure. Did you have a, uh, a therapist or some support person along the way that um, kind of made a connection for you in that way? I'm just interested how you've, you've made a leap from a person who is in the thick of this and overcoming this to being a person who's now working with people. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I had amazing people in my life. It's funny. So the first therapist I had in Chicago was awful. I, I couldn't even tell you her name. She was so mean. I don't know if she was like oh, getting no, ready to re- I don't know if she's getting ready to like retire or what, but she was not here for it. Um, I think she was pretty burnt out. But I went to rehab um, at a place called the Menninger Clinic, which is located in Houston, Texas. Okay. And I was there for many, many months. So I, I did kind of a long stay. Um, And I had the most amazing counselor there. And it was so funny. I remember her giving me a tour of the facility and I kind of went to rehab just pretty, you know, pretty resistantly, which I think most people go to rehab Mm -hmm. feeling that way. And we're kind of touring the facility. And I was like, you know, I don't think this is for me. I looked at all like the kids (laughs) in the group room and I was like, these are not my people. And she was like, oh, these are your people. Mm-hmm. And she was right. And they'd be my people for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just remember how much grace she gave me. I was angry. I was pissed off that I was there. And mm-hmm. sometimes she would just sit for hours with me um, in silence, kind of holding space for all those feelings and that anger. And I can definitely say, I don't know what she's doing now or where she is, but I can definitely say that she helped change my life. Um, you know, and 
I went to so much group therapy there. After a while, I, I do think I kind of viewed myself as like junior psychiatrist. <laughs> so <laughs> I would kind of like help people like, you know, new people like navigate their feelings and process things. And I remember a counselor saying, you know, you'd probably be pretty good at this. And they were like, not now. You're like a hot mess. Yeah. <laughs> later, later, a, later. But yeah. still. <laughs> yeah. Like you're a hot mess right now. But like later, I really do think that you have skills and kind of the personality and the ability to be a really good therapist. And it really wasn't until years and years after I finished up school at home that I decided to go get my master's in psychology. So that's kind of where I ended up where I am right now. That's really amazing. I, I always found group sessions to be really powerful in the sense that there's this um, kind of, it's, if it's one-on-one with a person, uh, you can have really insightful connections and really deep and, and vulnerable moments, but it felt, especially working with, I, I work with young people, um, but especially the kids, you know, there's a hardness coming into the group initially, but as soon as peers start to open up and be honest it seems like there's a, like, it's almost like a domino effect that can be really powerful. Um, is, is group therapy, you'd say that's still something that you're pretty active with or? I love groups. I love running groups. It's probably one of my most favorite parts of my job. And I mean, I know they're my groups. I'm a little partial to to the people there, but they're, they are hysterical and wonderful and, I really do think that's where a lot of the healing really happens. And especially with addiction, you know, if you haven't been through the fires of it, Mm -hmm. you can definitely have people in your life who are so supportive and helpful, but there's pieces and parts of it that they just don't get, you know, they just Mm -hmm. don't kind of fully understand. And when you can sit in a room of people and tell a story about, you know, having so your family member have to like peel you off the dry, you know, the parking lot of Taco Bell and everybody just kind of nods. They're like, yeah, I get that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, suddenly you're just like, okay, I'm not crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. Like these are thoughts and feelings and experiences that other people have had. And I think when you're in the throes of addiction, it truly feels crazy making. You can't even imagine that somebody else is battling this battle. Um, and, and group really allows you to see that you're not alone in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Directly combats isolation in a way. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. Um, could you talk more just about, um, I think maybe addiction and isolation, the sort of the lie of that, um, and the invitation to community sort of as a way of, um, walking forward together. I'm, I'm really just interested in that. Yeah, so sometimes addiction is described as a disease of isolation, which is Mm. really interesting. And I was thinking a lot about that in the pandemic, too. And obviously, Mm. it's been an epidemic for addiction over this last year. And even for people who have had long-term sobriety, suddenly, you know, they're they're lapsing again. They're not able to go to their groups um, and connect with their communities. Mm -hmm. And some of it's happened over Zoom, which has been great. but when you're not involved in that community, I think you're missing a big part of your recovery too. I think community really helps with the shame aspect of addiction. Mm-hmm. You, you carry so much shame with you. Like how, how did I do these things for so long? How could I not break free from it? And 
you know, Brene Brown too, who I love, she talks about bringing shame out to the light. And so when we can kind of take all those scary, dark monsters and we can put them out in the light and other people can look at them, it just takes the power away from it. <laughs> it's a really beautiful thing to be able to share kind of the worst parts, the messiest parts of yourself and have other people be able to see those and still love you and still accept mm. you, right? Mm. And that that truly is like where I see God and that spirituality mm. in in my practice um, and, and in a group and community around recovery too, uh, because we're able to like accept each other, the, the worst of ourselves and still say, you're valuable. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful and powerful thing just to, the, the parts of ourselves that we, um, fear will lead people to reject us and be horrified at us uh, are actually the places where once we're honest about them, we can find a connection with other people who have shared those experiences. Yeah. You know, my goodness, that's lovely. Yeah. And just the, the pastor part of me is saying like, yes, that's absolutely just this, this to be met with an unconditional <laughs> sort of love and, and an awareness of like grace abounds here because we're all coming with our stuff. Right. Oh my goodness. That's lovely. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that many of our listeners, um, there, there will be some who, who have struggled with addiction themselves, uh, continue to um, maybe have family members who, who are, who are uh, dealing with addiction as well. But many of them may not have it sort of as a, a reality that's readily apparent in their lives. Um, but, you know, what, what sort of ways can... Um, I don't know if I'm asking like in a big scale, like starting a ministry per se, but I'm, but I'm saying just, just even in a, in a, in a basic sort of interactive way, what are ways that a person who maybe isn't dealing with addiction themselves um, can be someone who deliberately and openly holds space to say, if, if you're, if you're wrestling with this, like I may not know what you're going through personally, but I, but I want to be supportive of you things to say, things to not say, like it's always just a minefield, right? Like I want to love people, but how do I do it in effective and and non-judgmental ways? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think education is essential and I'm sure that's true with anything. I think just understanding addiction is a really great way to break down the stigma around it there's some really great books. Um, this Naked Mind by Annie Grace is probably one of the best books I think written on addiction and alcoholism. Mm-hmm. My program does put a huge emphasis on disease concept and understanding kind of the neurobiology behind addiction. And I know that that doesn't necessarily help families heal. Like there's, there's brokenness and trauma that no amount of science is going to fix. Mm-hmm. But the thing that always comes up with addiction and even people who I think feel like they're well-informed is why can't they just stop? Like, why can't you just quit? <laughs> yeah. And in some ways, I think it's important to think about like any behavioral changes that we're trying to make in our lives. You know, think about your New Year's resolutions, right? Mm-hmm. How did those go? <laughs> and I, I suppose too, if it was that easy to just make behavioral change, you know, we would all journal every day. We'd all have six pack abs. We'd eat the whole food diets. We'd walk every day. You know, we'd do all sure, the things. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So in my reply, so I was like, well, why haven't you done that? You know, you've really <laughs> been. Let's, let's have some from yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But to just think like change in any of our lives is so difficult and so challenging. And then you 
basically have a kind of hijacked mind, mm. a hijacked brain in addiction. So you're not only fighting the behaviors, but you're also fighting this neurobiology that essentially has to be um, kind of rewired over time. So the education piece is great. I also just tell people work on active listening. We, we go into things wanting or feeling like we have to solve problems. So people are generally full of solutions, uh, but not full of grace. <laughs> mm. And you don't, have to, you don't have to solve the problem for them. And in fact, I think that's a job for professional people, mm -hmm. um, truly, okay. to help them sit down and kind of come up with a treatment plan and help them to determine how they're going to move forward. That can mean medications and therapy and what kind of therapy and what kind of group. But for the friends and the family or, or a pastor, it's just like creating space to say, mm -hmm. hey, I know you're really struggling. Like, share this with me. I don't have to fix it. I don't have to solve it. Mm -hmm. But I have the courage to just sit in that yucky, messy space with you for right now. And sometimes that's all people need. And I, I even have to remember that as a therapist, too, because I, I kind of like to solve problems. Sure. And sometimes in session, I'm like, Lauren, shut up. Just listen. They don't, mm -hmm. you know, they don't need you to fix anything today. We're just going to hold space for the pain. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, that's actually the harder thing to do. I don't think we like unresolved things. <laughs> no, we don't. You don't like to sit in any kind of ambiguity. No, but especially that was a struggle in therapy just to say like, oh, we, I could probably say, why don't you? And I'm like, no, no, I need to stop. And we just need to let people speak through things and sort of hear themselves in the process of it. Yeah. So. I remember um, in graduate school, they would like tape our sessions for us. And that was one of the things I always had to work on is I had a, a great professor and she was like, Lauren, you got to get comfortable with just silence, like just an, an unresolved pause. <laughs> and it really takes a lot of like training and practice to just sit in, in that pause. But I even bring that or try to in, in my personal relationships where I want to jump in and solve the problem. I'm just like, just quiet, right? Just, mm -hmm. just be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think there is a, a real power to that. And it's also really difficult because you don't necessarily feel like you're giving people what they need. If you if they're talking with you and, well, I should probably respond. And active listening is wonderful. It's important. But I think we've also been trained by it in some ways to even engage people in, in ways that might be a bit distracting. Like, am I really listening if I'm really caught up in the whole, I want to nod as I'm responding to you at all times. And, and like, so uh, to hold space, to just allow a person to speak, to get uncomfortable because they're looking for something from you that they may not find and then find it within themselves in the process. Yeah. It's a, it's a powerful thing. Could you uh, talk a bit more? I, I think I'm, I'm fascinated by, you talked, touched upon the neurobiology of things and how we're actually talking about a change in the, in not just the way of thinking, it's not a choice. It's, it's in the mind, it's disease. Can you share more about that? Yeah. And to be clear, there's a lot of choice involved in okay. recovery. And so in, in my program too, we talk a lot about personal responsibility um, gotcha. And I think those two things can exist at the same time. There's mm -hmm. this neurobiological disease model piece and part. And then there's a lot of personal responsibility too. Um, 
It's important to know that most addiction is not hedonistic. I think when we think like people drinking and getting high, it's like just to, to get that pleasure and that reward. And I think that's true to some degree in, in the beginning stages. But for me and most of my clients, you begin to use because you're trying to solve a problem. And the reality is in the beginning, it kind of does solve the problem. <laughs> You know, so if you're a, a highly anxious person and you're like, you know, I notice when I go home and I have a drink, I can chill out and I calm down and I don't mm -hmm. have those thoughts racing through my head. I mean, your brain's making a connection of like this works, right? Mm -hmm. This is a mm -hmm. this is a good coping skill because um, I'm getting some benefit from it on the other side. And the problem with addiction is like that's not ever where it ends. Um, and addiction happens in that limbic system. So that's kind of your lizard brain, um, mm -hmm. your, your very kind of primal brain. And you get uh, overwhelming amount of, of dopamine. And what happens over time, too, is that tolerance increases, is that brain really confuses the drugs and alcohol with something that it needs to survive. Mm. And when we talk about withdrawal, too, from drugs and alcohol, you know, even for people who don't struggle with addiction, it's who say like have been on pain meds for a week after a major surgery, you know, if the doctor handles it appropriately, they're titrated down over a period of time mm -hmm. because there's mm -hmm. already um, withdrawal from that. You know, and what happens a lot of times is people at some point have to continue to use to just feel normal. Mm. So when we say to somebody with an addiction, like, well, why can't you just stop? Well, for some people, it's because they couldn't get out of bed the next day mm. or they're going to be so physically ill that they're not going to be able to function. Oh gosh. So that's really, that's a fascinating thing. Like we tend to think of it as sort of something you're adding to your life for flagrant reasons, right? The hedonism when yeah. in fact it becomes something that you just start to use to bring you up to base level. We're not talking about adding anything fun. We're talking about just, just waking up, just getting out of bed. Wow. 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 Yeah. That's a, yeah. That's a powerful reframe. Gosh. And there is, there is like nothing like, it's so miserable and so sad when I hear people say it, but I know it's so true of that idea of like, they'll say like, Lauren, I didn't want to use today. Like everything in me, I didn't want to drink today. It's, it's like, I have no personal power anymore. It's like the air that I breathe. It's like telling somebody not to take the next gulp of air. Mm -hmm. um, and then it becomes like oxygen. Uh, and I and I do think that's important for people not to understand, not not be, not to provide sympathy or not to allow that person to continue on without making changes, but to understand that for most people, getting sober will be the hardest thing that they will ever do in their entire life. Um, and when the pandemic hit, I mean, it's been hard for everybody, and obviously, you know, there's been certain people too. It's been just absolutely brutal. But when it kind of hit, I was like, you know, recovery, people in recovery are ready for this. Hmm. Because if you've gotten sober, <laughs> mm -hmm. you've done the hardest thing, like you've fought the hardest battle you will ever fight. And it's not like that you'll have more challenges in your life. But you feel like you've been to war and back after that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you talked about how um, it can become like breathing, like a need for oxygen. Um, and I can't help but wonder if when when someone that you've known, maybe that's you, you, your child, 
has as you've grown up they're grown up in the house and and before addiction entered their life they had a way of thinking and engaging and now that's shifted so drastically and i i just i wonder um you know for the person themselves it becomes a whole new way of existing in the world but i i think about family members and others around them too who i knew you before i'm trying to be sympathetic and hold space now but you feel like a totally different person like what's i don't know if i have a question there i'm just trying yeah, like no, kind of I, I think it's a real um I, I grieving process probably for the loved ones of addicts you know especially if there was a before and an after mm-hmm. that they knew them be- before this was introduced in their lives where they're always trying to access that person again and they probably see glimpses of that mm-hmm. person and to some degree I think that's what keeps people hoping mm-hmm. um, and and persevering with, with treatment and with help, knowing that there's this amazing, bright, wonderful person who's, you know, essentially been hijacked by substances at this point. Mm-hmm. For some of my clients too, you know, I have clients who are uh, in their late 60s who started drinking when they were eight or nine years old. Mm. So there's not a lot of before. Sure, sure. <laughs> and regardless of whether you've drank for many, many decades or just a few years or used drugs, there's a lot of rebuilding that has to be done in sobriety. Um, and I, I think too, when we think of recovery, there's this idea of like the return to before, but mm-hmm. really I think it's equally important that you build something brand new and something better you know, than before. I talk a lot about creating a sober life worth living. And I think that's what helps people sustain long-term sobriety. Not that they have a perfect life, not that they have a life without problems, but they have a life that they want to hold on to now. Mm-hmm. Um, and for many people, you know, even before their use, they, they didn't have a life that they, they wanted to hang on to. Mm-hmm. And I really like that my clients, I want them to be, well-rounded. I want them to feel like they have active social lives and professional lives and that their lives are really big and full in sobriety. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think addiction, addiction fools us a lot because I think when we think we need to get sober, that our lives are going to get really small. But the reality is the prison exists in the addiction. The, mm. the prison exists because our lives have to become so small to manage that drug and alcohol use and to see the other side of that and how the world expands is really, really excited, exciting. And I think when you step into sobriety though, you have no idea. You just think things are gonna get taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Like it's actually, it becomes a hyper-focus upon what they're using. Um, yeah. You know, and yeah, my goodness. The amount of energy it takes to maintain an addiction is just unreal. Um, and I think people don't understand that either. Uh, just to, to plan out your day uh, around a certain substance is totally insane. Where am I going to get it? How am I going to afford it? Um, I have clients who talk to me about like, going on vacations. It's supposed to be like the trip of a lifetime. And all they can think about is like, where's the next bar? Because I'm out of my element. I, I haven't planned for the next drink. Um, and to be liberated from that is incredible. And I think a lot of people in the recovery go on to do credible things because they're like, I have all this time and energy that I, you know, I never knew existed before. Yeah. I have en- endless hours in a day to do some really cool things. 
I think I'm just, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, a fascinating thing. I think to, to even think I, I, and it's not just in regard to addiction, but I think in general, when we, when we speak with people on here, there, there is kind of at times sort of a hearkening back to the imagined reality of what was and, you know, the idealistic of whatever that used to be. Um, but it strikes me that a, most of those times, whatever that idealism was, wasn't real. Um, but B who we are now, we can't access what was, we, we have a, a choice and that's where we build forward kind of in a way that, that yields what you're talking about, this life worth living, um, which isn't scarless, right? It's, it's, it's full of, of marks and, and the journey that we've been on, but it can be so much richer and even stronger than what we've known before. It, it has to yeah. be such a profoundly liberating thing for people. Yeah. I think too, a lot of times like in recovery, there's kind of, you know, it's, it's so fascinating to see like how it's presented in movies and TV shows. <laughs> and a lot of us like can picture that scene of the AA meeting in the basement. And it's like a bunch sure. of like crust, like a bunch of crusty old dudes drinking stale coffee, <laughs> like talking about, you know, the, all their war stories. Yeah. Um, and there is, there is some of that. And I, you know, I, I kind of, I love that part of recovery culture too. But I think the goal too is to come out, I think a refined version of ourselves, a better version of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, we talked about that dry drunk too. Of if you're gonna get healthy, get healthy. Um, get to a place where you have better relationships, you can communicate better, you have improved coping skills. And I think for a lot of people, when they really go through treatment, they're like, you know, this was a really, difficult, challenging process. But there are so few opportunities in a person's life to take just rigorous inventory of themselves. Mm -hmm. And recovery happens to be one of those. Um, and if you can really do the work, I, I think you too identify that all the skills that you use, they don't just apply to your sobriety. You use them at work, you use them at home, you use them in your professional life. Um, and you can see how it benefits like every construct of your life. Uh, so recovery becomes about so much more than just not drinking, just not using. Well, it strikes me that I, I think that we, we really miss out those who aren't in recovery. We, we miss out on um, kind of the gift of what it might be to do life alongside or to work alongside someone who's gone through this process and is going through this process for the very reason you're talking about. Talk about yeah. a, a driven, self-aware, um, you know, and, and far too often it's presented in a negative light that ends up being dismissive in some way. When in fact, we've got some people who've like, like just what you're describing sounds like, wow, that's, that's somebody that I'd love to, to learn from and, and see how they engage the world and probably start to apply some of those self-accounting patterns myself. I could yeah. probably benefit from them. <laughs> I, think, I think everybody should go to rehab, you know, just check, <laughs> check yourself in somewhere for 30 days. There's a lot, I mean, there's a lot to learn. Yeah, but there's a lot, there's a lot of benefit. And I, I, I think too, the families of people who are struggling with addiction probably say the same thing too that they learn a lot about self-care and how to set boundaries um, and how to communicate with their loved one. So um, they also, if they kind of dig into their own treatment, I think probably receive a lot of value from doing that work as well. Yeah, that's, this is neat. Um, I, just in listening to you describe everything so far, um, it, addiction 
uh, kind of makes us feel alone, but it, it really does reveal itself if you're engaging with recovery. Uh, it's kind of like you're stepping further and further into a deepening awareness of community, like yourself as an engaged individual in the world, how you're affecting other people, how much you need other people. I mean, is that, is that a, I know it's a kind of a, am I looking at it the right way or is this uh yeah, I think it's a willingness to just practice vulnerability. And obviously, you don't have to have gone through an addiction to do that. Mm-hmm. I think I think that we all have a story to tell and we all have unique challenges. And when we open ourselves up, it is amazing who we will find who needed to hear that, right? Um, and I've even had clients who are like, you know, I kept my addiction like really close to my heart, like I'm doing the treatment and everything. But I'm not, I'm not sharing that, you know, in my personal life and professional life. And to be fair, I, I don't think that some, it's something you have to share, right? I, I think that we get to determine who we share our story with and, and, and how we do it. I, I don't think that's a requirement of recovery to kind of walk around with like that recovery badge, sure, you know, sure. on your chest. But they do have moments where they're like, you know, it came up today, like my boss came in and he said he's really struggling. And I was like, okay, this is this is the perfect opportunity to share a little bit of my story. Um, and hopefully too, like a redemption story. Mm-hmm. And it, it creates connections that you never thought would be possible. And I think that's the real power and vulnerability too. Um, I don't like to hang out with people who've like got the whole world figured out. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I know anybody. Know, I know people yeah. who look like they do, but I don't. Oh, yeah, know people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that anybody does, but but that that presentation feels incredibly tiresome to me. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's because I'm a therapist too that I have um, like just little capacity for small talk, <laughs> <laughs> and I probably need to work on that to be honest, right? <laughs> Um, so nice to know, like, we're, we're all challenged, we all struggle, and we all need help sometimes. And particularly in the world of mental health, it's like, you know, like I said, everybody should go to rehab, like there's, there should be no shame in getting a therapist, it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean something's terribly wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean you're crazy. It doesn't all it means is like, hey, I need a little extra help and support. I need a professional to kind of look into this with me and figure a few things out. Um, And it's funny. I mean, I have a bunch of friends on the East and West Coast. I've lived in New York. Like everybody in New York, they've got like three therapists, Adam, right? (laughs) Like just to get, you know, they'll run the same. This is normal, (laughs) y'all. They'll like run the same story by like three analysts just to make sure they're going to like make the next right move. So it's like no big thing. And I think they view it as like, just like you'd go like get your nails done or a massage. Sure. Like you go get your head shrinked. It's just oh. what you do. <laughs> if if only that was a more normative pattern, period, you know, like. Yeah. And I, I think it's changing. And I think there's been some really great things in our media and even movie stars and rock stars and people who have been mm-hmm. a lot more open about like, yeah, I go to counseling a couple of times a week and people are like, okay, maybe I can do that too. I love this idea of even um, like the online counseling, like the new apps. Yeah, where you can, you know, find a therapist anywhere and get on the phone and talk to somebody. I think that's so cool. Um, and I, I think it's really important to can you continue to destigmatize that I go to therapy still once a week. I love my therapist. It's super helpful. 
And anytime I have an opportunity to say, yeah, I go to therapy, I do just in case there's somebody in the room who's like, she goes to therapy, she's a therapist, and goes to therapy, you know, maybe, maybe I could do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know, you know, that comes from a place of privilege, too. And mental health care is not always easy to access. Um, and that's why we need to make those resources more readily available Absolutely. Um, and continue to, to like break down that stigma so people can feel like they get the support that they need. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll take the opportunity to say that I also love my therapist and I love, I, I love, I love meeting with him <laughs> because yes, it's, hear that listeners like, like both of us are saying, this is really great <laughs> yes. because it is, it's very, very helpful. Um, and I, I do think that, that that the invitation to kind of therapy has has proven for me to kind of even reflect a little bit of what you're talking about, this opportunity that we have in our lives to pause long enough to begin to like explore the categories and experiences of who we are. And normal everyday life doesn't make space for that naturally. Like we're hurtling along, we're tackling different things. But no, to draw aside for an hour with a person who's literally there to listen to you and to help you hear yourself. Um, as you process things, what a gift that is. <laughs> I wish- it is. It's, it's a, be- I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and, you know, sometimes I meet with mine every Wednesday morning and sometimes I don't even know I'm not okay <laughs> until, yeah, until I yeah. log on to my Zoom session. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? I'm really not doing that great this week. I got a lot sure. of things to talk about. Yeah. And I think that speaks to just our busy world, a busy mind, a busy schedule where creation for space to just be and kind of check in with our emotional temperature mm-hmm. is a really important space to create. And again, nobody listens to me better than my therapist and I'm happy to pay for it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's important. And I was gonna say to you, you kind of said, mentioned like people in the addict's life I think too, like when you think about a church community, a neighborhood, whatever community you're in, you know, it's so often that like if a child were sick or hospitalized, like we'd create like a meal train for them. (laughs) We'd be, you know, you deliver meals and send them encouragement and Bible verses. When your kid goes to rehab, that community doesn't exist oftentimes. And I don't, I'm not blaming the community because I, but I, I think because it's shrouded in secrecy and stigma, mm-hmm. those family members don't even know who to tell or if it's okay to tell people. And the reality is like they need the same love and the same care mm-hmm. and the same support as if you know you had a family member who was like critically ill mm-hmm. um, because it is such a heartbreaking thing to watch somebody spiral into addiction and and you feel helpless you don't know what to do anymore mm-hmm. um and and those families need just as much love and care as as any other family struggling it reminds me of one of our first episodes we were talking with someone about just the loss of a child of uh, a pre-birth and just losing children and they'd said, you know, when you have cancer, when you have um, a heart attack, people bring you casseroles. No one brings you casseroles for losing a child. It's just not part of the culture. And I think you're right. Like, like it's, it it brings the question. And I think, you know, I can't get away from this question. I'm a pastor. And so I'm constantly thinking like, how can the church be a community that 
loves the people who are a part of it well, in a, in a way that is actually like life-giving. Because I think Christ offers us life and life to the full. This is the invitation. And I, it has to involve a space where we can bring our whole selves. And, uh, and I, yeah, it, it makes me wonder, like, you know, is it just addiction? Is it just, um, you know, when somebody has lost a child? Is it, is it just um, sexual addiction? Is it any number of areas where people kind of have this shroud, this secrecy, this deep shame that I can't possibly bring this to people? Um, yeah. What other ways can you, can you think of, especially like, <laughs> this is a bit selfish, I'll just be honest, but how can yeah. the church better um, not just support people who are in addiction, but how can we um, just em- embrace them as, a, as an active and, and beautiful part of our lives? You know, I think, I think it starts with, with the, per, uh, the person. Like, I think we have to do our own work. So, like, all the things that you mentioned, like sexual addiction or grieving the loss of a child, I, I think for a lot of it, it, like, brings up our own stuff mm-hmm. that we're, you know, I think particularly, too, like, losing a child, for most of us, that is the most, one of the most terrifying thoughts we can even mm-hmm. entertain in our lives, right? Like, a kind of profound grief that you would, like, never recover from. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, it's like we have to face that that within ourselves to even make space available for someone in that kind of pain, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I think people avoid some of that because they're like, that those are just uncomfortable parts for me that I, I haven't looked at, I haven't faced. Some people have like un undealt with like issues of, of grief that they haven't processed. So anytime grief comes into a space, they're like, nope, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that's another reason it's so important for therapists to go to therapy because obviously there's a lot of things that come into our space in our room that we're not comfortable with and that we have to face. Grief is one of those things for me. It's a hard space for me to sit in mm-hmm. with somebody. Um, and I've had to like really work on that. So I think it starts with like dealing with our own stuff and processing, why does this make me so uncomfortable? Mm. What is it? Is, is it my own shame, my own personal experiences that I need to kind of process or work through? Do I feel like I always have to solve problems and I don't have value unless I'm solving problems? Um, so I think it starts there. I also think like just more practically, like for a church, it's probably good to like know specifically with recovery. It's good to know who your recovered addicts in your community are, right? <laughs> um, or parents who are grieving, who those people are, because I think they are able to connect um, more quickly and and kind of break through some of those some of those walls more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and what is it for such a time as this? Yeah, I mean, yeah. in in some ways, it's like this is. You know, and I feel like that in my own profession of like, this is this is God, what God has prepared and created me for. I don't know that he sent me this addiction. Like, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm not there yet with it. Sure. But I, but I can certainly assign meaning to my own experiences. Mm-hmm. And I, I can see how now I can be of value to, to other people who are really, really battling this and in a lot of pain. And I, I hate to see people in pain, but it's also you know, a profound kind of amazing experience to say, God, like, I've, all my experiences have led to this moment where I can be Mm -hmm. here for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's an incredible thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, My friend Charity Goodwin 
says that, you know, with God, nothing is wasted. And I think I'm probably, I'm, and I'll, I'll admit like, this is more in comfort for me in the moment. I don't know that I'm really comfortable with the whole idea of God sent me this addiction, but I, but I am much more comfortable with the idea of God is with me in the midst of it. And God walks with me as we try and build forward together into whatever may come, you know, and uh, that whatever I have walked through can be used to, to, to produce really powerful results. If, if I'm open to it, if I come alongside others, maybe who are experiencing the same. Yeah. You, you just really quick. You had, you talked about the dynamic too of uh, like in, in the church, particularly doing your own work. And I think this is, this is a really challenging thing for a lot of people um, because a lot of people look at the church as a place where if you have crap, <laughs> you don't come because you're not, we, we don't take people, you know, like, don't bring that stuff in here. We want you just to kind of have your, have your crap together. Like when in that, but that, that a that's, I'm using lots of a and B. I don't do that normally, but like um, it, it's, that's not what Christ offers. That's not what the church should be. Um, but what, what a beautiful challenge to say, I, not just in the church, but in general, if I, if I encounter a person and who they are and what they're wrestling with and what's going on in their lives, they take in the risk to be real and honest with me. Like, and if I have this pushback in me, kind of a, like a, almost an inner shoving away to take the time to say, why is that happening for me? Yeah. And again, it's not a bad thing. You know what I mean? Sure, I think it's sure. just about, I think it's about having or doing rather some like self introspection of just saying yeah. that is, that's bringing some stuff up for me. Like I, I want to run from it. I want to push it away. And you know, and sometimes that's okay. That's like, you're just intuitive self being like, you don't have any bandwidth for this mm-hmm. right now. Right. Sure. And that's okay. Like this isn't, this isn't your thing. And, mm-hmm. and that's okay. You can set like the boundaries that you need to set for yourself. But I do think it's an important question to ask of like, this is making me feel really uncomfortable in a, in a way I don't in other areas of my world and my life. And to say, mm-hmm. like, what, why is that? What is that about that thing mm-hmm. um, that I have a, a really difficult time addressing or it's very difficult for me to sit in that with somebody? And mm-hmm. generally, we have pretty good reasons, right? Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah. I, have, I have counselor friends who, you know, have had parents struggle with addiction and one route they could have gone is they could, could have gone and counseled those family members, but they've gone another route because they're like, it's a, it's, it's raw and it's tender it's for too me. too close, too close. It's too close. And mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like I've done enough work to be uh, the, the compassionate kind of counselor that I would like to be for those folks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think recovery counselors have to work really hard too on, knowing that just because we've had this experience, it doesn't mean that my client's experiences are mine. In mm. fact, they're, they're so uniquely different in so many ways. And I really think people find recovery in all kinds of ways. And so it's also important to say, this is my story. This is my narrative. But this person is maybe not going to find recovery and sobriety the same way I did. And that's okay, too. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, Lauren, we're coming to the close here, but I want to just kind of ask you, um, not our listeners are kind of all over the place. And so it's not just in St. Louis, but if, if someone is um, kind of recognizing a need to enter into recovery or, um, you know, they're even family members of looking for support, are there any kind of like 
main points of entry into looking for that support in whether it's like, it could be phone numbers to call. It could be websites, whatever it might be. I'm just interested to see if you have anything that maybe could be offered in that way. Yeah, I think, I think getting professional help is super important. I mean, the easiest thing that you can do up front, and I am in no way saying that you have to have a 12 step based recovery. And, mm-hmm. and personally, I actually don't, but if you need help that day, that moment, I mean, there is an AA or NA meeting every hour of every day. So if you need to connect to a community really fast, all you had to do was Google and anywhere you are, you know, in the US, you will be able to find a meeting, which is an incredible thing. Um, I'm also a huge proponent of evidence-based therapies. Um, so I'm personally trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. um, but, but there's many other evidence-based modalities. And I think just making the phone call, just go to the consult, right? I think it's important too to note that when you're deciding to get into a treatment center, every treatment center is not going to be for you. You're going to have to find a therapist who feels like a good fit and you feel comfortable with a group um, and a center. And fortunately, in 2021, there are a lot of ways to do recovery, truly, that cover all spiritualities, Mm -hmm. all kind of treatment modalities. And it's okay to do a little exploration of that up front. And I do think a low pressure approach is, is, is good to say, I'm going to meet with somebody. We're going to talk, right? That's all we're going to do. We're going to figure yeah. out what's been going on over the last year. And then I'll decide what I'm going to do after that. I don't have to make any huge decisions today. Yeah. Um, and I know sometimes there's a lot more urgency to get somebody who's in a critical condition into care and I understand that. And, and that is kind of more dire straits. But generally, it's like, make some phone calls, go to the appointment, see if they'll set up a Zoom meeting with you. You know, it's easy now. <laughs> well, we'll make sure to provide some links, both to the books you had mentioned yeah. earlier and uh, to even AA and, and things like that with this episode. Um, so we'll, we'll make some direct points of connection for people if they need them. But Lauren, okay. I really appreciate time with you. And this has been, I, I've, I've loved getting to know you a bit more, hearing some of your story, but just I've learned so much just even in our 45 minutes together. So I really <laughs> appreciate it. Thank that. you. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Thanks, Adam. Okay, bye-bye. This has been Instructions for Living a Life. Thank you for spending time with us. We know that your time and your life are precious. Please visit instructionsforlivingalife.com for more episodes, and information about our guests. We'd love to hear from you, so please use the contact form on our website. Please also find us on Facebook or email us at stories at instructionsforlivingalife.com. Like and follow us on social media, and please share this podcast with your friends. Our thanks to the talented Danny Bracken for the use of his music. To hear more, visit lowlumens.com. Again, thank you for inviting us into your story. We're grateful for you.